This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is conflict isn't the problem, mismanagement is. And our guest today is Marlene Chisholm. Marlene is a seasoned speaker, thought partner, advisor, coach and author. She is the CEO of Marlene Chisholm Consulting, offering a comprehensive suite of consulting services to businesses and leaders. Widely recognized as the leading US authority on stopping workplace drama, she works with C-suite leaders to build drama-free cultures that drive growth and reduce costly mistakes. Marlene is known for helping managers address the elephant in the room and initiates conversations that get results. Her experts includes leadership development, conflict management, and strategic communications. Marlene is the author from Conflict to Courage, How to Stop Avoiding and Start Leading. Marlene, welcome to the Workplace <laughs> Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I thought I would start and name that the topic of our conversation, conflict isn't the problem, mismanagement is. I have to say, reading your book completely aligned to your philosophy. We were talking earlier on how it's, it's, it's not just about conflict, it's about shadow work. It's about there's lovely quotes that you have that you, you def- have your own definition of conflict, how it's a lot to do with inner conflict. So we're going to touch on all these various different things because we experience conflict every part of our work lives and we experience it in different ways. So we might come across that as, especially if leaders are listening in, how we can give them uh, certain insights and maybe highlight some blind spots. So where should we begin, Marlene? Conflict not, is not the problem. Mismanagement is. Uh, so yeah. people think that conflict is a problem. And as a result, so many people openly admit that they avoid it. And the reason they avoid it is because they think it's a problem. So mm. when you stop thinking of it as a problem, that it's not about the conflict in and of itself, even though you will think that it is. It will feel like it's a situation or another person. That's the illusion that you're going to go through. But if you can train yourself to say, that seems like a problem, but really it's my ability to manage it. And right now I don't have that capacity. And so what I find is that in the world of leading, but this happens in personal lives too, the ways that we manage it are just ways that we've learned to cope. So that might be avoiding. And most people that avoid openly admit they avoid and they don't like it, but they know that they do and they justify it. Others avoid in this way. They appease. And appeasing, I think, is the most difficult one to recognize because those people that appease, in other words, I agree with you. Well, of course, I'll be there. Yes, I'll get that done. I love your idea. When they don't love the idea, they're not going to do it. They're going to make an excuse at the last minute. In other words, will you be on my board of directors? Would love to. It comes time and it's all about, you know what? I've got a sick mother. The dog is at the vet. I thought I was going to be able to. When in reality, you knew you weren't going to from day one. Mm. But you like to make people feel good. So therefore, even though there's a conflict of interest, you say yes to keep a relationship in the beginning versus thinking long term that that's going to to breach the trust. And then finally, there's aggression, which I think is more where I am. And it's something I have to work on. Aggression is still avoidance because when you're aggressive, you're avoiding feeling something that you don't want to feel, which is rejection or someone else not aligning with you or your own personal growth or the, or the part that you bring to the problem. It's a way to shut people down and get your way. So therefore, it's a huge blind spot and people will justify that by their disc score. Well, I'm a high D or on the Enneagram, I'm a five or whatever they do to justify it. That's just the way I am. I got to be me. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just authentic. But the truth is, relationships are so important to alignment. And we're getting, we're in a world now to where it's hard enough to sift through the facts and to to build trust. So it's really up to us if we want to lead in any capacity to expand our awareness of our blind spots and then in, increase our conflict capacity. That's the wonderful thing about the book then that you give people these insights. So even if we touch about aggression, avoidance and appeasing, I've been in team workshops where appeasing is a big part of what the manager does. We'll just settle things down and let's keep things calm. And actually the best thing that could do is actually maybe sometimes allow the conflict to emerge and then let's discuss what's going on. So a lot of times what people are trying to do is let's sweep it under the carpet And then after years and years of appeasement, this is where we get toxic cultures, or it could be the other way where we talk people down in aggression, isn't it? So it it shows up in different ways, isn't it? Because the avoidance then is is like, they probably think they're doing the right thing, let that person cool down. And sometimes we need that break. So the wisdom comes in knowing the difference, you know, because we sometimes use timing as an excuse. But here's, here's the weird thing about this. I know that you know this because of the work you do. If you're really, really angry, you can get to where you understand that's not the time for a conflict. That's not the time to have a conflict or a difficult conversation. When you're really, really angry, you're not thinking clear. So you do need a cooling down. But sometimes once you cool down, you fool yourself into thinking it's no longer that big of a deal. Well, I was just tired. I was hungry. Well, I I was just being rough on them. But if you were that angry, ask yourself if something's not still there that needs to be brought up. Maybe you did need to calm down. Maybe you did need to sleep. But do you need to check in with that person and say, hey, you know, I wanted to just check in. Yesterday, I was really upset because walk me through what was your point of view. I'm better now, but I still have a loose end here. Like we don't like to do that because that brings it back up again. We would rather lie to ourselves and say, it's no longer any big deal. I'm completely over it. When in fact, you're not one bit over it because the next time it happens, you are going to blow because you already have evidence that this person isn't trustworthy or that they don't do what they say or whatever story you've got going on about it. So the hard part is once you do calm down, you still have to address it. Yeah, and that's the where the assertive communication comes in. And I like how you have this framed as conflict capacity. So you talked about self-management and self-regulation in your book. What's the kind of difference? How might people recognize that in themselves? Self-regulation, I think, is noticing your feelings, which is hard. Really, it is very hard. I mean, I think one of my favorite books, um, The Untethered Soul, I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Learning how to let energy process through your body feels so bad we are not good at it. We would we would rather lash out in anger or go shopping or gambling or do something to distract from whatever the emotional and, and the thinking patterns too. We don't like it. So regulation is about noticing, noticing when you're getting wound up. And I would say in kind of other terms, like when you're in a low vibe, you know, when you're in those lower vibrations of anger, resentment, And before long, you're telling yourself things about the other people or you're feeling envious or resentful. If you don't notice that, you'll justify your own behavior. So regulation is about saying, okay, I've got energy build up here. There's something that needs to be released. Let me regulate myself. If I have a meeting, can I journal about it or can I set it off on a back burner or can I go ahead and set the meeting to talk to someone knowing that that's taken care of so that I don't have to focus on it anymore and I can get myself at least to neutral. So I look at self-regulation of knowing your body, you know, and I guess self-management is very well related to that, just managing yourself. And and I I, I talk a lot about emotional integrity too, which is something I'm working on which is taking ownership of your experience. Because what we typically do, and I'm no exception, when we feel something, we blame someone else for the feeling. In other words, if I hate someone, it's me doing the hating. Yeah, They, they did something, but I'm the one with the feeling and the experience and the story and the narrative. So if I can at least take ownership of that to say the illusion is that they did something and that triggered something in me, which there's facts around behaviors and whatnot. But if I say, look, I just own that right now I'm angry. I just own right now that I'm very disappointed and frustrated. And I'm not ashamed of what I feel because it's just a fleeting 
moment. It's just an experience. I'm not going to make myself terrible or bad for that. Then I look at the dark side of that to say, what's the narrative? What am I, you know, if, if you feel revenge, go ahead and like journal about it or own it within yourself because it's still there, whether you admit it or not. And so then at that point, it's about representing yourself. So I always tell people it's okay to even say in the middle of a heated conversation, I'm really feeling angry and I don't have to be here in 20 minutes or or next week. But right now, like I'm feeling it. But what we generally do is we say, you need to calm down. You know, you need to calm down. You know, we, we blame the other person once again. You need, it sounds like you're getting defensive. No, represent yourself. I, I can tell I'm wanting to defend. I can tell that I'm not able to listen right now and I want to. So let's reschedule. That is hard to do because it takes the prefrontal cortex. But that's what I, that's really what I call management and emotional integrity. And when you talk about mismanagement conflict, you talk about disrespect, discounting and dismissing. So, so we're talking about engaging the prefrontal cortex and these are kind of triggers for people as well, aren't they? People can use these as tactics to kind of minimize the conflict or minimize us as a power play. So what might that look like then, those three things? Well, like, you know, we were seeing it on social media right now. It doesn't matter what part of the country, part of the earth you live on. <laughs> yeah. We're just seeing so much disrespect. But let's just take it down to a, a couple of people having a conversation. This was one of mine that I used to do. And it's once again, it's a, an aggressive stance. I don't think I've ever done this since this time, but because I learned from it. But what I used to do when I would get frustrated in a conversation that didn't make sense to me, I would say, well, never mind. And I would roll my eyes. That's a real subtle way to say I'm above it all. And you're, you're kind of like off in your thinking. So it's people feel these kinds of things, even though they can be really subtle, the little eye roll, the, the two or three interruptions where you've got to talk and you won't let them talk. And I always say a disagreement doesn't ruin relationships. Disrespect does. We're struggling right now within ourselves to be respectful when we disagree, especially politically or in religion. I mean, I can see people of the same religion argue about what Christianity is or isn't. Um, I can see people of the same political orientation get into heated fights about one or two points or or who the hero is of a president or or not. Mm. So I think we have trouble when people don't see our point of view and then all we want to do is be right. And then that discounting or like, well, consider the source or the eye roll. Um, when, when that healed for me was a really long time ago when I got really clear about some values that I wanted to live by. And I said, well, I want to improve communication and relationships everywhere. In fact, that's the legal name of my business is I care. I care presentations. It was I care consulting. I changed it a thousand times like every new business owner, but it still legally is I care improving communication and relationships everywhere. And I was still a factory worker at this time. I had not even left my blue collar job to start what I wanted to start. And I thought, I've got to live these ideas right from where I am. And then I was in this um, conversation with a friend of mine that I really admired. She had a PhD, very bright. And we got to talking about politics and religion, and we had very diverse views. And then at some point, you know, we just got too close in a way. But at some point, I just rolled my eyes and I said, whatever, you know, apparently we're not going to agree. And she threw a fit and got really angry. And she's like, you think you're so above it all. And it turned into this huge conflict. And I was so shocked because in my mind, I saw her as perfect. And to see that aggression come out like that was such a shock. Well, I kept going around telling other people that, can you believe it? She's a PhD and this is how she acted. And they'd be like, yeah, that's ridiculous. And I'd say like, I'm sarcastic. I roll my eyes. You think nothing of it. No, it's nothing, Marlene, because we seek social proof. And then one day something hit me right between the eyes because I was in this group. I was really growing and I was doing a lot of transformational work. I was telling the story once again. And I said, it doesn't really bother me. And this person said, well, it actually does because you told the story three or four times. And I went, whoa. And then she said, and here's the real question. It doesn't really matter whether someone else feels that way or not. The real question is, does rolling your eyes help you to improve communication and relationships everywhere? And that's what changed it for me, because by our behaviors, we either align to a set of values or we don't. Mm. 
So if I'm going to be all about improving communication and relationships, it doesn't matter that I think it's okay. It matters that it bothers other people. So now I have to change that. Sometimes I, I read many books for the podcast. And it's funny when I was reading your book and then I'm reading another book by uh, Christine Porat on uh, Mastering Community. And when you talk about disrespect, she mentions an example in her book where there was a T-shirt hung up in an office that was blockchain matters. And it was kind of a play on Black Lives Matters. And then how that was seen as disrespectful and how they had to approach that to say, do you realize that I have to talk about my child of how to interact with police for fear they will uh-huh. get hurt. And they saw something, well, it's just a joke. And then how that can be seen as, as disrespectful. And I think we all have experienced where people are disrespectful for us, where they discount to say, you know what, it's not that bad. You know, especially with a hybrid world or the pandemic or whatever that was happening or dismiss out of hand it's actually that is not the truth these these are kind of things that really add fuel to conflict don't they when people take on these behaviors because we don't feel seen is what it really is about and there's kind of two sides of this coin if someone offends me i owe it to them to gently share with them how that affected me I don't need to go on a rampage on social media and talk about how unenlightened someone is or or unawake. I mean, that creates more conflict too. And you're generating the very thing you say you don't want. So for the person that did that about, you know, the t-shirt in their mind, because of their frame, it was a a joke and it was a play on what was said in their mind. It was not intentional. So I think we have to separate what we view as intentional versus unintentional and we have to give people at first the benefit of the doubt. Here's my view on that. Um, and I, I learned this early on, too, when I was still a factory worker. I remember going to confront a very aggressive boss. And because I was learning things I wanted to bring forth later, and I had this feeling if I could do it from the lowest level with no power, it would hold a lot of power when I had power, which has been so true. But when I approached him, um, he what was something that I didn't like about him, which was his aggressive nature. And if you don't like it, find yourself another place to work and not my problem. I didn't ask you to work here. When I confronted that about how I experienced that, that it was as unapproached, he was very dismissive. And he said he quoted Eleanor Roosevelt. He said, no one can make you feel anything without your approval. And I was so in tune right at that moment. I said, perhaps. But now that I've told you, if you keep doing it, you do it with knowledge. Wonderful. Right. So in other words, I'm telling you and I'm being vulnerable. If you want to say that's on me and I'm just concocting something because I'm weak, fine. Maybe so. But now that I've told you and you keep doing it, you have information which tells me now that it's intentional. Whether it was before, I don't know. But now that I've brought the the behavior forward, now you know. And this is the thing with dismissing. It's kind of linked with gaslighting, isn't it? That it's kind of like we dismiss or, or discount. And as you were speaking there about sometimes when we say something and maybe you said it's about being seen, sometimes it's about recognizing something or acknowledging something. So in my mediation training business, I often tell people, if people are repeating things over and over again, that means they haven't felt heard or they haven't been acknowledged or their their feelings haven't been uh, recognized. And I think that's a huge thing is, is, and this is going to move us to segue into this building conflict capacity. And if it's okay with your permission, I might read a, a, a piece of the text. Expanding conflict capacity is about the abilities to stay engaged in a difficult conversation. Staying present to a high conflict personality and build enough self-awareness to create a space or set a boundary before getting triggered into old dysfunctional patterns. What a wonderful sentence. So tell us a little bit more about conflict capacity. Conflict capacity is, if you think of it the same as if you're training for a marathon, you only have so much capacity because you haven't strengthened yourself. Mm. You haven't done the, the work over and over again to be able to go to one mile to five miles to build your lung capacity, your muscles, the right tennis shoes, everything that, you know, the right conditions to be able to do what you're wanting to do. Conflict capacity is no different. We have to expand ourselves so that we're not so easily triggered or so that we're not afraid of the same things we used to be afraid of. For example, I used to be 
kind of afraid of very aggressive men that had power that were straight shooters and would interrupt and didn't seem to have much tolerance. And I just purposely put myself around people like that so that I could build up tolerance for it and even find it humorous by watching myself and how that scared me and how I'm no longer at all afraid of that. I can totally tolerate it. I can accept it. I can enjoy that person. I can say, hold up a minute. I wasn't finished. And I don't have to be all weird about it and crazy and upset. I can just say, I really can just accept people for where they are because I don't need other people to change to make me feel safe. I just need to expand my own capacity so that I always feel safe because I trust myself. So it's really more about that. You said something earlier I want to bring into this because I think it's such an important piece and it has to do with capacity as well. You said, you know, when people don't feel heard and they keep repeating and repeating and repeating. With that said, sometimes we can we can hear people, we can try to help them, we can coach them. You know this from your work. So here's what I learned in narrative coaching. The story that's been resolved no longer needs to be told. So that does happen through hearing, but it also happens through someone's own ability to do their inner work and take responsibility for their own situation. So we can't fix someone else. And so what we can do is be that witness. We can be that coach if they hire us for coaching and we can feed back to them what we're seeing. But, you know, a lot of the work of coaching is to help people resolve their stories. And, you know, you can only you can only coach a regulated person. So if someone's wound up and throwing fits, this is not the time for coaching. It's the time for radical listening or for setting the boundary. And so learning those, that's the skills part of conflict capacity. In the book, I talk about three different components to building capacity, and two of them are completely up to you. And the third one is cultural. So the first one that most people work on, whether it's through their company or whether they join LinkedIn learning or that whatever they do skills development. Here's how to say it. Here's how to listen. Here's how to approach. Here's how to do this or that. And so the skills development, I used to think that the reason people struggled with conflict is they didn't have the skills. That's only partly true. The skills development will take you so far. And what I noticed, like on LinkedIn, people are always throwing up their certificates. And I've got five programs on LinkedIn learning myself. And I love it. It makes people feel accomplished. They've gone through a, what, a one or two hour program with three minute videos. They've taken some quizzes. But the truth is, without practice, without trying it, without seeing where you're going to dip, you don't understand it. You, could, you, you know it book wise. You can take a test. You can take a little three point quiz. But doing it is what builds the real skill. So skill building is hard work. It's not a workshop. It's not a checklist. And I don't think most people understand that because you can know something intellectually. I know a lot of things intellectually that I wrote about in my book. I'm still working on many of those things as practice. The other part of that is the internal game, the inner game. That's your self-awareness, your discernment, your experience, your wisdom, the way that you notice your narrative. It's all the invisible things. It's that it's that shadow work. It's knowing yourself. It's it's all those things that are so difficult because it's the only game you can play. No one else can do it for you. I always say someone can prepare your taxes, clean your house, drive your car, but there's nobody that can do your inner work but you. And so those two components are what it really takes individually. And then in the workplace, there's culture. Of course, in our world, there's culture too, because as we know, COVID changed the culture of the entire world, how we see business, how we do business, our fears, whether we believe politically in masks or not, travel restrictions, all of that, it influenced us. Did we have the capacity for it? Only if we were developed in a, in a couple of ways. I, I felt like COVID did not bother me that much because I already worked from home. It didn't affect my environment and I had inner skills where I had already quit a job and went out there without any kind of support. So I kind of knew that feeling. And so that shored me up, I think, for this time, you know, in, in history. But for some people that maybe had had success and and security, it rocked their world. They've now got three kids to deal with and they're trying to work from a home computer and they didn't have it set up. So culture has a lot to do with our capacity. You know, if your culture supports you, then you're going to have an expansive capacity. But if your environment or your culture or the top leaders, if they don't support the training they've paid for, and when you try to make a decision, it's not going to work. So that's capacity. I wholeheartedly agree with the shadow side or the inner work or that reflective piece or internal narratives, whatever you want to call it. 
any leadership development program that I roll out, a big part of what we do is not just about strategy or high performance teams. It's that inner work. Yes. Because if you are not at the best version of yourself, how can you expect other people to be there? And you will notice what is, and, and you talk about this in your book, the costs of conflict. In your book, and I'm going to put out a fact if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Conflict costs $359 billion in hours that are focused on conflict and not on productivity. Now, here's the thing. When I speak about conflict and you speak about conflict, people are going, oh, we don't need to do that. And it is rife in the workplace. And nobody, it's like the elephant in the room that you were talking about before. Well, and truly, I just want to say to anyone that's listening that's at the top of an organization, how many lawsuits have you had? Because that's what that's the cost of conflict. And I always say that um, every lawsuit litigation that you can look at, I swear to you that if you traced it back, you could trace it back to a conversation that should have happened but didn't. Someone felt not included. There was a middle manager that didn't know what to do. So they avoided, they avoided, they appeased, and they finally moved that person to the basement to work with their best friend to try to get them out of everybody else's hair. And that felt that felt exclusive as well. If you don't have conversations with the person who needs to have the conversation, it will boil into a lawsuit if you're a big organization. That's just how it's going to be. And most middle managers are too afraid to go to their upper level leader to say, I'm struggling. And most upper level leaders think they shouldn't have to do it. They don't think they should have to coach their they're the leader under them. I've hired them to be the director. I've hired them to be the CEO of their department. You know what, though? They're still struggling. And so if you feel like you don't want to get your hands dirty, you need to hire a consultant and look at the problem because the problem is not going to go away. Yes, there's money put away for the legal fees and all that, but why should there be? Why shouldn't you be able to deal with it? It's, it's not really that hard. It's just about managing the conflict. So it is about being proactive. And then this is what happens then is if we're not proactive, as we said before, those old dysfunctional patterns appear. And this is the inner work. This is how we, we learn conflict is how we experience it growing up, whether it's at home, at school, in college, neighborhood, sports teams, whatever. And I think in the workplace, this is what you're talking about there, because a lot of people might find themselves in a, you know, we're talking about quiet quitting now and different things like that, where there's toxic cultures, like people are faced with scenarios now where a lot of people have left the organization. They're now feeling the brunt of the workload now because they have to take up the slack and all the knowledge then is going through them because they have to teach others or train others how to teach them how to do the work. And here's the thing then is, is it to people, you know, when we talk about quite quitting, do they say, listen, not my circus, not my monkeys, you know, <laughs> do we do we say actually is is this a toxic environment that I can work in or is this something where I, you know, I need to jump ship? Like if, if, if you're struggling with where this dysfunctional pattern is going in and like you have these legacy problems where, you know, if a company is 40 or 50 years old, you have these legacy issues. What do you think? This is an example. Like right now, my mom's in long-term care. Okay. I, love, I love my hospice nurse. I do love her. She's great. At the same time, she's telling me about the conflict she's having at work, which is not a conflict like people arguing. Here's the conflict. Because conflict is bigger than just an argument. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand conflict. She's working. She's, she's on salary, so she doesn't get any overtime. And she's working 40 extra hours a week and not getting paid for it. Now, she's telling me, a client who's got a mother, and which she shouldn't do, but energy is going to go somewhere, right? I'm glad yeah. she's telling me because of the work I do. So what I've said to her is, that's not right. Have they offered to give you any bonuses or any comp time? Well, you know, no. I'm like, why don't you talk to your manager? And apparently... The manager is keeping this from the owners. So in other words, they all know that they're being overworked and they keep taking on new patients and people and nurses keep quitting. They're quitting because there's a conflict of interest. You're not respecting my time. You're not respecting my expertise. I'm drained. I can't do one more thing, but I'm too afraid to talk to my manager because my manager is protecting the owners who they view as only being concerned about the money. So because of the way they view the owners, there's a conflict in telling the truth. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. 
And so the conflict is not even noticed and they're hiring and hiring and hiring. And like you said, the retraining, the losing of expertise, the losing of like, when I lose that nurse, I now have to start over. Am I really getting hospice care? No, I'm not. I'm getting a checklist. And so the point is that plug the leak before you add more rowers, give them a new or give resources. The conflicts are not being talked about because of the structures of power and the culture. You Mm -hmm. see that that's conflict. But nobody yeah. sees it as conflict, but so we mismanage it. And and, and it, this is where you mentioned in your book a different lens. So sometimes there's visible structures and there's invisible structures. So when we talk about what are visible structures, can you tell me about that? What, what do you mean by that? Well, visible structures are things that you can see. You know, for example, um, you don't fly up to the second room to the second floor. There's either an elevator or there's a stairway. That's a structure like the reason like structure determines behavior. And I don't know if it determines, but it certainly shapes behavior. And so, in other words, if I work on the second floor of an office, I either take the stairs or the elevator. So why would I take one versus the other? Well, the structure that's invisible is in my head. I want to get my calories. You know, I want to take more you know, energy to, so that I burn calories. So I'm going to take the stairs. Or the elevator is broken, so I can't, I don't have that choice. So structure is going to determine behavior. But then an invisible virus called COVID comes in, and now we don't go to the building at all. So now I have an environment in my home, which is physical structure. But then I also have my mind, which is preoccupied with my three kids who are trying to learn from home. So structures determine and shape behavior, whether they're mm. visible or invisible. And we often don't understand that invisible structures also shape behavior and shape decision making. So within the context of what I just talked about, the fear and the barriers between upper level and middle management, there's no conversation going on. We keep wondering why we're losing people and we keep promoting that we're caring and it's about dignity. But you know what? You're not giving dignity to your people already working because you're asking them to put their own lives at risk. So you're you're misaligned structurally mm. and you don't even realize it. And a lot of my work works on either leadership teams or an organization level. And sometimes the organizational design is not set up or make, people are making assumptions to say, actually, you know, we haven't looked at how we uh, have set up our processes or our systems and, and those structures there. And here's the thing then is we can, we go back to mismanagement, then it really is a lack of difficult conversations. Cause sometimes, for example, what happens is I, I've seen this before over my my couple of years working is uh, more than a couple of years, <laughs> 12 years of business this year or 13. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes you'll have the pot stir that's promoted, you know, because they're seen like the, the person that gets stuff done and people are going to go, how did that person get promoted? Or sometimes people stay too calm and it's kind of like they're not ruffling feathers, but they don't realize that they have a department that is completely toxic. It's just because they're putting on this perception of camp, you know, and then you have the avoider and all that type of stuff. And and I've often seen where it seems like they've been managing the conflict, but all they've been doing is suppressing it. And then when <laughs> a new person comes in, it's like, what have I just inherited? So it's it's about that that leadership conversation. This we keep going back to leadership and that personal leadership. What will the, 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 the future me thank me for or the next leader thank me for? I just saw an article. SHRM is the big organization here in the U.S. that supports human resources. So they're all okay. about documentation and conversations and not getting into lawsuits and everything. Well, they're in the middle of their own lawsuit right now. I actually posted on that one of my articles in LinkedIn. I can't remember what the name of it is because I, I am not great at remembering statistics and even details. I look for patterns. I look for bigger picture. I look, you know, that kind of thing. But here's the gist of it. They are in the middle of a discrimination suit because a woman, um, I think from Egypt, um, of color from Egypt, she had fine evaluations with her uh, previous supervisor. When a new one came in, the new one gave her bad evaluations. They were not good. And she felt like she was being micromanaged and singled out. And the whole thing was all about how new managers sometimes don't realize they're being exclusive and they don't realize they're micromanaging one person and they have all these biases. What I saw was, this is my belief, and I don't know, it's just my story. My belief is the former supervisor didn't give accurate feedback. 
And she just did things because she was afraid because we're all scared to death that someone's going to think we're picking on them because they're old or they're woman or they're of color, whatever the issue is, right? Disability, we're scared to death of giving people honest feedback because we're, we're afraid of what might happen. But the truth is avoiding it is creating the problem. Talking about it and treating someone as the valuable person that they are regardless is what's going to get you the, the workplace that you want, expecting and knowing that that person can get there. So what we do is we play these games because we're so scared of the politics. And my belief is that probably the former supervisor just gave adequate evaluations to avoid any kind of drama. That's my belief because I see it all the time. And the new one that came in was probably giving accurate feedback. That's what I think. And now it's turned into a discrimination case. She got the attention of everybody, including the top CEO, and nothing got done because they all kept appeasing. We'll look into it. You're getting the ear of the top person. And, and they've promised to move that supervisor versus look at what really was going on. Mm. I just think that's so interesting. And of course, I'm building in my own theories into that. I'm not the investigator, but I think it's worth looking at. Did that last supervisor leave you in a good place or not? Were they really managing it or did it just seem calm? Because the problem is at the top, they don't want to hear your problems, but it's better for them to know your problems than it is to not know them. And that's the point I'm trying to make. We're mismanaging it based on our belief system about conflict. And this is what you have uh, identified in your book. So I'm going to quote a, a little sentence, if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. Leadership identity plays a major role in how new leaders manage conflict. Three ineffective leadership identities include best friend, hands off and hero. Can you talk us through those? Because I yes. think our listeners will be fascinated by this approach yes. or insight. Yeah. So what happens like identity is who you think you are. So if you think you're a leader, I first talk about aligned leadership identity. And that is when I think I'm a leader and you do, too. Now we can work together because you agree that I'm a leader. I see myself as a leader. If I see myself as a leader, but you don't, chances are I'm a boss and I want to be in charge of you and you don't like it, right? If I don't see myself as a leader, but someone else does, I've been promoted because of seniority or because I was a top player. I was a star performer or rainmaker. So what happens is when I get promoted, let's take these different scenarios. I get promoted based on seniority um, and I'm happy because I'm a, I've got a new role. I'm getting more money and I'm now a leader. And I tell myself these things like, you know what? I've always been friends with everybody. So nothing's going to change. They'll have my back. I have their back. And before long, I'm their best friend. And what I don't realize and what I didn't know was that there will come a time where my loyalty will be tested because I will have to go along with the top organization on a choice that I don't have. And then what do I do? Do I whisper to my team? I don't agree with it either. But or do I allow people to come and tattle because I need to be their friend? And like, I'm just keeping my eyes open, watching all the drama play out because I'm just trying to be a friend to everybody. And my open door becomes this revolving door. And I am so overwhelmed with everybody's drama because I feel like it's my place to fix it. In fact, employees mm -hmm. will tell you that it's your job to fix it. I've seen that over and over, even with owners who try to be best friend leaders. You can be friendly. You can be congenial. I think you have a culture where you're like a family, but know the rules when you have to have conversations because you will have to and boundaries will be crossed. And then secondly, uh, the hands-off leader. A lot of times that can be like a star performer who gets promoted and now they're a leader or maybe they're at a director level and they've got that belief system of I shouldn't have to micromanage. I'm a director. That's the, there's managers in place for that. So I'm just going to be hands off because anything I do is going to be seen as micromanaging because like, let's face it, employees use that a lot to, to complain about their managers. And I think there's a vast difference between a light touch and hands on. And I think you need to know what's going on. I, I think you need to know what the complaints are, what who's feeling disenfranchised. You need to know. And so hands off is sort of like, I, I shouldn't have to handle these petty things. My job is more strategy. And sometimes, depending on the work, you do have to be hands on. Um, and then um, the hero you know, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best. So it's always about me fixing it, me fixing it. And that too can be that star performer where like I was the hero when I did my job. So it's really hard for me to mentor other people and let them do their thing. Like I want to keep proving that without me, you know, it's really hard to get done. So when we take on, if we have an identity that we don't realize we have, that identity is one of those invisible structures that's going to make us behave a certain way 
and we'll think we're right and that everybody else is misunderstanding us when in reality it's our identity our identity that's driving our behaviors i coach a lot of people in these areas it's funny the, the last one, the hero, it's that person who are such a type A, they're ambitious, they achieve a lot of their goals and they have so many aspirations and expectations of themselves and then the same of others. And sometimes they're putting too much pressure on the teams, this high pace setter type role. And again, this is where burnout happens for them and the team. And then they're wondering why. And because you put, if you layer that on with the hands-on role then, they're not delegating enough or they're micromanaging or they're putting too much pressure on results without actually being more strategic. Say, actually, I need to protect my team right now, you know, and I'm not going to be just their best friend. It's like, if I start losing team members right now, this is detrimental to the organization. So I need to delegate upwards or, you know, use my uh, personal or positional power, whatever it may be. You know, yeah, it's what are just so, it's so hard. I mean, it's hard. And really, my purpose isn't to point out the flaws of leaders, but it's just to give a snapshot, like, do any of these things apply? And if so, how can you balance it out? And in my mind, the best way to balance it out is through awareness and conversation. You know, are yeah. you like, can you talk to me when there's a problem? Or do I tell you that's not my job? It's your job. Can I coach you? and allow you to mess up and then hear what you learn from it. Cause those are skills. And I think yeah. coaching skills is really leaders are going to need to develop those skills more and more with the world that we have now, especially with the new generations coming mm. in. I do think coaching skills, asking questions, I call it leader as completer. Like in other words, if I don't quite trust you, I'm going to micromanage. And that has to do with my ability to trust you because you act confident, but you don't follow through. So now what I need to do is I need to kind of create a plan that's not just about their improvement, but about my improvement. So it's about, okay, we're going to put you on this project. Here's the skill sets. Let's talk in two weeks because it's it's due in four weeks, but I want to like have an update on how you're doing, because if you really have a good conversation with someone in the, about performance and it shouldn't be just once a year, you really want to. One thing I teach in my book is to think like a consultant. So in other words, you don't see someone as flawed. You say, well, they want to do a good job and I was fooled. They were very confident, but I'm disappointed. So I'm going to put it into one of these buckets. Was it clarity? Was it priority? Was it resources? Was it skills? Or is it willingness? Because generally speaking, nowadays, a lot of times it's resources, just like, like what I told you with the hospice nurses. If that's the way it is right now, could you provide lunch for them every day? What could you do to give them resources? Because if it's such that you have to have them and you have to have them working, why are they quitting? What could you do? Or why is someone not doing a good job? So often here in the U.S. it's childcare or transportation. Could you fix that problem? Probably hire a driver to take people and pick them up if that's, you know, if it's the frontline workforce. Um, so you're always trying to say there's almost always a lack of clarity in all of the problems. So that will always be there. But a lot of times it's priority. They didn't realize that was the top priority or because you kept shifting priorities. There's not only a priority issue, but a lack of clarity. So if you can figure out in your leadership what you're not doing well, then it always comes back to you. Were you explaining it? Or like, I find that myself, sometimes I'm not clear again with the situation with my mom in the long-term care, I will be exasperated sometimes because I feel like I've asked for something four or five times. But when I look back on it, it was a generalization. It was a hinting. It was a wish. And it wasn't a, can I rely on you? Can I follow up with you? And mm -hmm. so a lot of times it's in our follow-up where we're pretty weak, you know, and that, that is where the accountability is. And this is what I have noticed is that leaders who did the inner work or that self-development or leadership development piece before the pandemic, they didn't just survive, they thrived. You know, and I know you speak about uh, this in your book and there's something I've held on to it there is that best friend at work. If I'm that leader and I've adopted that identity, some people, they often ask me advice about this is if I don't agree with management and I'm struggling with that and somebody has an issue with that and I also has an issue with that, how do we, how do you deal with that if, if people are, you know, really struggling? 
Yeah, that's really, really hard. And I, I don't know that I have a complete answer for that because I'm dealing with mm. an organization now where that's going on. This is what I will say that I do know. It's really very important not to appease people to make them think they have a choice in a matter when indeed they don't. That's where I see the problem is a lot of times is that we're not clear on, is this something that we have a choice in? Is this something that you as our leader can influence or is it not? And if we don't know that, here is an example that's pertinent to this. I was doing a little mini kind of coaching workshop with a group and here was the question that came in. The question that came in was, we've, we, are, we have to change all of our software on our computers internally, and one person refuses to change her software, and she's got good reason why she doesn't want it to change. Um, and so what do I do here? Because when I ask her about when she's going to change it, she has these reasons, and she just won't do it, and I don't know how to, to manage that. And I said, well, my very first question, I, everybody was on, on the video. You know, I said, my first question is, does she have a choice? And they all said, yes. And I said, then, unfortunately, she's told you what her choice is. <laughs> she has yeah. said, I'm not going to change my software. And then they said, oh, 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 well, that's not. I said, so it's mandatory. It's mandated. And they go, we don't like that word. And I said, so you don't like that word. Well, we want to collaborate here, though. And I said, but the truth of the matter is it has been decided. I said, so my next question is, if she came up with enough good reasons, could she alone keep it the way it is? Or would the whole group decide she's right after all? No. I said, so really, it's mandated, but you just don't like the word. Because the truth will set you free. And, and I just felt this strangeness even through the airwaves. And I said, I have to bring the elephant into the room. I said, I feel like you think I'm mean. And there was just this awkward silence. And someone said, well, you're, you're very direct. And I said, I would rather someone tell me the truth about what I have choice over than to appease me and not like a word. And I'm confused about where my rights are. Yeah. But I'm and seeing it's too direct. It, and this is the thing is, is it, this is this radical candor, you know, the work of Kim, Kim Scott. Yeah, I do. Is like, I would much prefer if you're direct with me rather than, you know, conceal something or give the illusion that I have some sort of choice. If the choice is not there, I have to suck it up and move on. Well, there's good ways to deal with that too, because see, again, that's mismanaging conflict of thinking that it's male, I'm, I'm authoritarian and you're going to do it. Yeah. And there's no, choice. no, no. Here's the thing. The decision's been made. There's choices about the time frame and the support that you need. And I'm willing to hear you. However, the choice has been made by people that have done research and they know there's going to be bumps and glitches and that it's going to be hard. Yeah. And I hear you, right? Like I get it. However, so there's ways to present it. But when I'm getting passionate and I'm hearing the deception, yeah. like it feels to yeah. them like I'm, and I probably am taking on their energy because I'm aggravated that they're not seeing it. Yeah. But the reality is, if something's not a choice, I need to know that it's not a choice. And what choices do I have, right? I can decide this is not the right place for me. But here's the reality, too, that I have to grapple with. Everywhere I go, there are going to be technology changes if I work with a computer. So I can resist that here and be gone tomorrow and go to another place. And it's the same issue two years later. So like understanding the culture and the bigger picture versus just my job and it's easier for me, maybe it was easier for you to use a paper calendar, but that's no longer what we do. And that's the thing about sometimes in organization decisions is a lot of people don't understand the rationale first or what is the strategy or what is the vision. And sometimes if we as leaders can own that, and it is about ownership. It is. You know, because sometimes when you're, you're, uh, I, I suppose, saying this, and I don't agree with that. You're not owning it. And, so you and you're also sneaking by and being your best friend versus aligning upward, which is what you have to do. You have to, you have to be the bridge for sure. Um, but yeah, I think another piece to that too, which I don't see organizations do this, and if they do, they do it in an appeasing way. I believe being as transparent as early as you can to say, we are going to be making some changes. 
We mm. want to hear from you how this is going to affect you so that we can have realistic expectations as we go through these changes. We've done the research. We've hired a recruiter because here's how you feel on the front lines. They don't understand my job. Like, I mean, I was, like I said, I was a factory worker. There were times where the marketing people two states away would come up with some idea that just totally made our work so hard. You know, the mm. way we packaged something or the way we flipped a coupon. I'm not sure they understood what it took to do what they wanted. Maybe they did. And maybe the vision was so big, it didn't matter. But we were never communicated with about how's this going to happen or like, you know what, it is going to happen. You're going to hate it and you're going to be breaking your back, but it's going to make us more money. So you just have to do it. There's just that bridge of communication that's missing. And so therefore you feel like you're not understood. And if they only knew how it was here, they wouldn't ask us to do this. No, they probably would. There's probably some money behind it that they've researched. They're smart people. We're the ones that don't understand. Right. Mm. And I, I'm going to go back to your definition of conflict. So I'm going to read from your book again. My definition of conflict is to view conflict as misalignment due to opposing drives, desires, and demands. This definition takes personality out of the equation, eliminates your assumptions about motive, and makes conflict much more interesting. Think of two arrows going in opposite directions. Isn't that wonderful? When I see you <laughs> doing that with your hands, the opposing directions. Uh, that's the whole thing about podcasts is audio, isn't it? And, and this is the thing is, it is... It is those opposing drives, desires, and demands. We have different needs. We have different interests. And, and here's the thing is we need to figure out what's going on for us. So when aggression is going on, I often tell people, well, what are people trying to protect? What are people trying to defend? Is it trying to protect their status? Is it that they're, they're trying to protect the amount of power that they have, their, their budget, you know, their role? It's that... Maybe they're trying to protect against uncertainty. And this is where aggression is coming out. And this, again, is about your conflict capacity again. This has been a wonderful conversation, Merlene. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity right now. If people were to get in contact with you, find out more about your book and more about what you do, how might they do so? Oh, wow. Well, you can find the book on Amazon. It's From Conflict to Courage, How to Stop Avoiding and Start Leading. Anywhere you buy books the book should be available. I'm on LinkedIn and it's a great way. If you want to say you met me on this podcast, you can connect with me or if you just want to follow, then you'll get updates about things that I do live there. Or you can visit my website, Marlene at MarleneChisholm.com. Not sure anyone ever goes to websites anymore because <laughs> yeah. I have nothing to sell there, <laughs> but Marlene at MarleneChisholm.com. Marlene, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I had a blast. Me too. Me too. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.